This evening I'd like to speak about some aspects of not knowing and how that manifests in our life and our practice. I think one of the interesting and challenging features of our life is that it doesn't come with instructions. It's a little bit like you could imagine being given a a wonderful present by uh, an overseas friend or relative and it looks like this amazing thing but when you unpack the parcel you find out the instructions are all in a foreign language and you really don't quite know how to operate it though you're sure that if you could it would be really wonderful and I think that's a little bit like our life sometimes we uh, have a sense of possibility and potential and yet we don't necessarily know how to live it how to engage with it we've never really been instructed in what's truly going to work for us in our lives and we're kind of left to a process of trial and error which we sometimes wonder if we'll actually come to a you know a result from a result from or we'll come to a place of clarity out of and we can you know get a lot of education through the uh, conventional forms of uh, in a way taking in information but that information in itself doesn't necessarily answer the deeper questions. It perhaps shows us that you know we learn skills and capacities for uh, earning money or taking care of certain practical, physical, material elements of our life. But the learning of our heart, the learning of the responses, the resolutions, or possibly the answers to the real questions of our life doesn't come from the information that we've been taught, that we've learned from books, that we've heard from other people. It comes much more directly from the way we meet our life and the willingness we have to actually learn from our experience. We could say in some ways, meditation is the art of learning to read our life, to actually understand what it is saying to us, what it speaking that we need to comprehend, to understand, to learn. And therefore we pay attention, we look at our lives from a place of not presuming to already know all the answers, not necessarily even presuming to know what we might be looking for. Of course, it's not as if we're left completely without any idea as to how about how to go about our life, and uh, spiritual traditions have generally thought to give us plenty of advice with regard to what is important or how to live. Sometimes that's useful, sometimes that's not so helpful, it seems. In the Buddhist tradition, the sort of uh, traditional three-line summary of the whole thing comes down to Basically, uh, on a quote from the Buddha, it's often uh, repeated, where he suggests the way to live is to refrain from doing harm, do good, and cultivate the mind and the heart. And in many ways, this is what we are actually engaged in here, undertaking the precepts as a, as a basis of being together, refraining from causing harm many ways in which our, our presence and our activity here is actually 
contributing to our, to our wholesomeness, to our goodness. Certainly things such as the work that we do in the work period that really contribute to everyone's ability to be here. It's a very direct contribution or doing something which is good or useful, helpful. And there are many other ways in which the very nature of our practice is a contribution to the wholesomeness of our life. And the, the, con- the cultivation or development of the mind is the, the third feature that the Buddha pointed to or highlighted as essential elements of a good life. What we're engaged in in insight meditation and in loving-kindness meditation is cultivating beneficial and wholesome qualities of heart and mind. And so there's a certain framework that's presented for us of, of what, we can, what we can do to live well. But of course it's not really quite that simple, is it? To, you know, fine, refrain from harm, do good, cultivate the mind. Um, but it seems that life is a lot more complicated than that. And uh, such sort of quotes are nice to share with our friends or inspire us on occasion. But more often the, the nitty-gritty reality of life is that it seems rather difficult to separate out what is actually contributing to wholesomeness and what is actually contributing to harm. We don't necessarily know straight away when looking at the choices that face us what is actually leading towards that which we wish to affirm in our life and what will actually what will actually allow us to leave behind or to let go that which we wish to. We can find ourselves often in our life somewhat torn between the choices of what seems to be sensible or provide, which usually translates in the sort of the modern world as will provide us for safety, security and material wealth or ease at least. That kind of sensibleness, getting a sensible job, maybe having sensible clothes, I don't know what else would go under that heading. And yet, while there's that sort of pull or draw that we can feel, and often coming from voices outside us and equally within ourselves, within our hearts we can be drawn to something that doesn't seem to be of that order, that maybe expresses itself more just as a sense of possibility, so we don't know quite what it's drawing us or inclining us towards. But it speaks perhaps in some way of satisfaction or a sense of authenticity or or meaning in our life that is inviting us or asking us to make changes. And yet changes that we're not quite sure what we should change or perhaps even worse when we're quite sure what we should change but it looks really scary to do so because it's going to involve giving up some of the security, the safety, the familiarity of our life. And this of course goes on very much equally in our meditation practice. We, we're again and again confronted with opportunity to let go, to simply come back to where we are, to be present. And yet it's not easy to do so because in order to do so we kind of have to allow ourselves to rest in a place that's not so stable, not so predictable, and certainly not in our control. 
And sometimes it can seem that we're overwhelmed, pulled in different directions, and it seems like any direction that we take is fraught with danger. We don't know, and I'm speaking here more perhaps about the life situation in literal terms, although emotionally our response can be similar to what can happen in the retreat situation. I'll come back to that. Um, but in our life we can, we can kind of feel like we have to make a decision. I need to go this way, I need to go that way, or is there a different way, or should I just stay where I am? You can feel under a lot of pressure to somehow resolve the question, somehow come to the answer. And one thing that we may discover and that I think practice points us towards is that when we're in that condition where we don't really know how to respond, we don't know what to do, what choice to make, or how to hold a certain situation, then what we actually need to do, rather than resolve the question or find the answer, oh, I should do this or I should definitely not do that, rather than trying to come to some fixed position or intellectual certainty with regard to the appearance of the problem, what we actually need to do is kind of turn around and rather than following the question out looking for an answer, we need to kind of turn around and come back into where the question is coming from to actually feel for ourselves what is that condition of being conflicted or uncertain or drawn or pulled or pushed in however many directions at once. It's a little bit like being lost, where we might realise that we're not quite sure where we are and we're not quite sure where to go and if we stay where we are, well, it's going to get cold and wet and, you know, we haven't bought any sandwiches. Whereas if we head off in any of those possible directions, well, we could get worse, more lost. It could actually be that we're supposed to stay where we are and hope someone will find us. And yet, it's so hard to do that. It's generally, you know, it's the recommended procedure if you've had any training in being in the wilderness. If you really don't know where you are, stay where you are. At least in most situations, that's not an absolute rule. If absolutely no one knows you're out there, then you might consider trying to find your way out. But generally, if you're wise, you've told someone where you've gone. But anyway, that that suggestion to stay where you are, because very easily, when we're in a condition of uncertainty, what we get caught by is actually the tendencies that draw us further into confusion or into um, pathways that aren't so helpful. To actually be able to rest in the condition of uncertainty, of acknowledging that right now we don't know where to go, we don't know to what to turn. It's a poem. I don't know the author. It's called Lost. Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful present. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest speaks. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may return, saying here. 
No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to a wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, then you are truly lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are, and you must let it find you. To actually stand still, to rest in the place where we don't know where we are or we don't know what to do, is perhaps one of the most difficult things. And yet it's in that place that we can get to know what is there. The bushes and the trees around us. The different components of our experience when we feel lost, confused or uncertain. To actually get to know these components, to understand what they are, what our experience of them is, is to actually no longer be lost, but to know where we are. And as we come to know where we are, we come to see the different movements, the feelings, the forces that are there within our life, within our heart, within a particular situation, that pull us in one way, that repel us from something else. Coming to know them, coming to see them, in that deepening clarity and recognition of just where we are, quite naturally, what happens is that life speaks to us to tell us where we need to go. We can't necessarily, and this is something that for myself I've found quite frequently to be the case, we can't necessarily force the decision to happen as to what we need to do or where we need to go. What we actually have to do is honour where we are. And when the decision happens, we'll know it. And until it happens, that's where we are. We're in that place that hasn't yet decided, that hasn't yet become clear enough, or that perhaps hasn't yet touched into and tapped the qualities that we need to actually support us to take the decision, or to make the move, or to make the change in situations where it involves making changes. To actually know the condition that we're in, this is what we're invited to do again and again in practice. And our life asks this of us as really the, the precondition for our being able to understand. See, the kind of instructions for our life are found right there in the midst of us. Not by reading a book about it or listening to someone else's ideas about it or necessarily even thinking about it so much ourselves. But by actually resting in the condition of our uncertainty. The answers are always within that condition. But first of all we need to open to it. We need to actually accept that this is where we are rather than resist it or struggle with it. And likewise with regard to you know, where we may not so much be feeling the sense of an uncertainty around a decision that we need to make, but just the uncertainty of what is going to happen and how am I going to deal with that? What am I going to do if it goes you know, like this, horribly wrong? Or, and of course there's all the things we could conceive that might turn out in our life to be difficult. 
we can't resolve how to respond to those situations that haven't yet arisen. But what we can do is recognize the condition in which we are in. And that the clarity we bring to the condition that is here and now, that clarity will inform the movement into the next situation, the next moment, the next circumstance, whatever that might be. And in doing this, in really listening very carefully and considerately, interestedly, in honouring our inner experience, we start to think, we start to hear that amongst the different pulls and the pushes and the voices and the stories and the fears and the regrets and the hopes and the desires and the, all the mixtures of what goes on there for us, that there is actually an authentic voice of our own. That, when I say of our own, I could equally say, or we could equally understand it as an authentic voice of life that speaks within us and speaks to us. That is rather quieter than maybe many of the voices we're used to listening to. That requires a certain sensitivity and gentleness in how it's approached but that when we actually create the inner conditions, when we're actually really willing to listen to everything that is there, in the very midst of all of that, in the, which is our life, in the midst of all of that that's happening, which is our life, I think we start to see, we start to understand quite naturally what needs to be done. Another poem by Mary Oliver called The Journey. She speaks of that point where we start to see more clearly and can act. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundation. Though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late, late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognised as your own, that kept you company, as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. As we feel more deeply into our condition, into our actual experience, what happens is that the voices and the stories that seem to be the foreground and the most predominant element of our experience so much, the thinking mind and all its fears and desires, 
When we actually feel underneath that into the condition of experience from which the story of the fears or the story of the desire comes, the actual experience of fear or desire itself, when we actually feel into that, when we're actually willing to touch that, the story starts to lose its power. And we feel more the essential energy or life force of of movement towards or away from that can be so powerful when it's unchecked, when it's unconscious. And in the in the stories becoming less loud, the natural wisdom of our life starts to shine through. This requires quite a degree of trust. Because letting go of the story, stepping out of the the ways that the stories reinforce our sense of who we are, our sense of the past and the sense of the future, it's like that's not easy. Because living in a world like this world, like any world really, a world that is inherently unstable and unreliable, unpredictable, a world in which it really isn't in our control what goes on. The condition of insecurity that that creates for us is one that easily drives us and pushes us, propels us, again often unconsciously, propels us towards seeking security, seeking certainty, and making things feel fixed, sorry, making things seem or feel or appear to be fixed and solid because it feels safer. So we tend to stick very solid stories about our life, about who I am, about what I need, about my past and about my future. And when we actually start to come more into the moment, when we let go of the stories that are constantly reinforcing a sense of me, suspended in the middle of my life with all the stories of my past, and all the stories of my so-called future, that the sense of me is somehow revealed, somehow mysteriously, miraculously, between those two places. And when we're not so involved, when we're not so caught up in past and future, where we actually find ourselves to be is something that's relatively intangible. Nothing, something so solid we can kind of put our foot on and say, okay, this is where I am. Perhaps we may know more clearly where we are not, because where we are not, we are not in the past, and we are not in the future. We can't be found in either of those places. Our life doesn't happen there. And being in the moment, being actually where we are, at a more direct, immediate sensation, feeling, experiencing level. It's really scary actually. There's something about it we really don't like. Because it challenges our whole sense of how and who we are and what the world is. There's no reference point for ourselves to know who we are anymore. Because it depends on all those stories the stories of our past and our future, the stories of fears 
and desire, hope and aspiration. And when we actually just settle into where we are, we're profoundly out of control. What's happening in terms of our experience is not in our control. And all the effort, all the energy, all the momentum that's built into the, the way we're used to living to somehow try and fix it challenges us incredibly. It's really difficult. And so we find ourselves again and again drawn into the story, drawn into fixing something, trying to find answers or solutions or get things sorted out in a way that we kind of can rest and relax and, okay, got it now, you know, and take a break. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? It's not such a bad idea, but it doesn't really work. It's our only problem. It's actually kind of a major problem. Learning to trust the truth of our experience. Learning to trust our life as revealed in where we are right now, in this moment, in any moment. This is an act of great courage. And it's a, an act we are, that is asked of us to actually trust our life. And it's important that we understand that courage does not mean the absence of fear. Because in facing the uncertainty and the unknownness of even just what it means to be here right now, let alone the vast uncertainties of our future, even just in facing to be simply here right now, can even be a degree of fear about that. What it would be to really let go. And it takes a courage that is not about the absence of fear, but the willingness to acknowledge that fear is present and yet not be bound by it in the choice of our action. This is what freedom from fear is all about. It's not about somehow that fear doesn't arise. It's about our ability to recognize it for what it is, which is fear. To know it is an experience right now and to not let it determine our choices. Which means having to feel it. Because the power of fear is that we don't want to have to feel it. Therefore we try and make, we choose when we're in its power, the choice that will not expose us to the fear. In the hope that that somehow will serve us. Now sometimes of course, you know, things that we find fearful, we do actually need to protect ourselves from. So that's to do with intelligence. A truck coming towards us, standing on the road, we feel fear. We don't just think, I'll feel the fear, be with the fear, yeah, okay, I can do this. No, we say, there's a truck coming towards me, I'm on the road, get off the road. That's intelligence. But if we're standing on the side of the road, the truck coming towards us and we feel afraid, we want to jump out of the way and we could jump onto the road in our fear. That wouldn't be so smart. Actually, we're so fair. Unless the truck's coming up on the footpath, in which case, yeah, just jump into the garden. But to stop and see, not just to react to fear, but to see what's the appropriate response here. Sometimes, you know, if we put our hand in a flame, fear would tell us, don't do that. Or pain, tells us, take it out. Smart, doesn't make any sense to put your hand in a flame. 
unless you're reaching through to the hand of someone else who's in the flame and you want to pull them out and the fear might still be there but you might do it anyway or to pull yourself through because in fact you're already inside where the flames are and you need to get out and they'll fear to go through the flame and yet not much intelligence in staying there the building's on fire so fear in itself doesn't determine the choice avoiding the feared course of action or feeling that we're compelled to have to do what we're afraid of to somehow get over the fear neither of those are actually free conditions of being <coughs> but we're human beings and it's remarkably hard for us to actually enter into the situation that we don't know that the, the fear that if we don't recognize it for what it is it very easily paralyzes us and we really want the guarantee of certainty before we act there's a story of a man who was a lifelong atheist and uh, he was walking along cliff edge one day and unfortunately the, the cliff was undercut and it crumbled where he was walking and he fell and it was a great drop of some you know 50 50 or 70 yards 70 meters and he was falling and as he just was falling he, he caught hold of the branch of a tree about halfway down and he just managed to hold on and blow him there were these sharp jagged rocks and he was holding on thinking, what am I going to do he felt his arms getting tired and suddenly it just spontaneously despite having been a lifelong atheist he thought God if you're out there if you save me I'll believe in you and there's a deep rumbling voice that's what they all say <laughs> and he almost let go of the branch in shock no no he said truly honestly I, I know I've been a disbeliever but some hope there um now if you save me I'll, I'll really believe in you I, I promise it's true I've heard that one before no God God really save me and I'll believe in you trust me and the voice says okay then I will save you let go of the branch let go of the branch <laughs> you think I'm crazy <laughs> the process of trust yeah I believe in you I believe it's good I, I believe you'll save me but we want it on our terms we want to know how we're going to be saved we want to know what's going to happen before we're going to step into that field but obviously in that case uh, one's either going to hold on until one falls or have to trust in something and that really comes from a point in our life where we realise that living our truth is actually the most important thing living our truth is the most important thing more important to us than comfort or security more important even than the approval of the people around us not necessarily an easy choice to make it doesn't have to be seen of in terms of absolutes of leaving everything known and familiar behind 
But even in our meditation practice, we might notice those places where we're kind of holding on. Where life is asking us just to let go a little bit. And what do we do? To just rest in the stillness of being present. What do we do? Read a piece from Ajahn Sutito, abbot of one of the uh, Buddhist monasteries in England, an English Buddhist monk, and said, There is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to, rec- to recognize that really the learning part is where we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, The aspiration of our life is keep going. Past the area where you can't control it anymore. And trust. For me this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth. To honour truth and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. Challenging as it is to enter into the unknown, the condition that we cannot control. It's also profoundly life-affirming because it is the way life is. And in doing so, what we find is that entering into our life wholeheartedly, being willing to face those places where fear arises and enter into the fear and thereby into the life in that moment, in that place. To stay present, to stay steady in the face of our uncertainties and our confusion and our unknown, the unknown elements of our life. As we begin to do that, life actually opens up. The fear is that actually it's going to get smaller and contract, but it doesn't. It actually opens up. It starts to show its vastness. It starts to show the remarkable possibility that there is in being alive. The remarkable capacity life has to face even the greatest challenges and bring forth fresh and new. Just as grass grows again after the winter. That life springs forth of itself again and again in remarkable ways, but it needs the space to do it. And all too often in the search for security and certainty, we actually place too much pressure on ourselves, on our lives. 
too much pressure on me to know, to get it right. You can't always get it right. This is how life is. We have to be able to make mistakes in order to learn. There's really no other way to do it. If we knew everything already, we wouldn't make any mistakes, but we wouldn't be here. And so to be willing to just do what we can in that way. And in that not that that befriending of it, the uncertainty of life, there is a way in which many possibilities open to us. That there's a, a courage in facing life's uncertainty that evokes a certain quality of grace. And this grace is quite able to transform our lives. But how that comes to us, we can't really predict or know. We really, again, have to trust in our life as it is. And not knowing, not fixing things so solidly, not being so sure we know who we are, or we know what's going to happen if we do this or we do that. There's a, a way in which it, it offers a respect to the way things are, to the possibilities of life that are much greater than our fears would allow us to believe. I'd like to read a story. The story concerns a monastery that has fallen upon hard times. It was once a great order, but as a result of waves of anti-monastic persecution and the rise of secularism, all its branch houses were lost and it had become decimated to the extent that there were only five monks left in the decaying mother house, the abbot and four others, all over seventy in age. Clearly it was a dying order. And in the deep woods surrounding the monastery there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town used for a hermitage. As he agonised over the imminent death of his order it occurred to the abbot to visit the hermitage one day and ask the rabbi if by some possible chance he could offer any advice that might save the monastery. The rabbi welcomed the abbot at his heart. But when, he, when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. I know how it is, he explained. The spirit has gone out of the people. It is the same in my town. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together. They read holy scriptures and spoke quietly of deep things. The time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced each other. It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said. But I've still failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me, no piece of advice you can give me that would help me save my dying order? No, I'm sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. 
When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered round him to ask, Well, what did the rabbi say? He couldn't help, the abbot answered. We just wept and read the Torah together. The only thing he did say, just as I was leaving, it was something cryptic, was that the Messiah is one of us. I don't know what he meant. In the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monk pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance in the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us. Could he have possibly meant one of us monks here at the monastery? If that's the case, which one? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? Yes, if he meant anyone. He probably meant Father Abbot. He's been our leader for more than a generation. But on the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas. Because certainly Brother Thomas is a man of light, a holy man. Everyone knows that. But certainly he couldn't have meant Brother Elred. Elred gets angry all the time. But come to think of that, even though he's a real thorn in people's sides, when you look back on it, Elred is virtually always right. Mm -hmm. Maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Elred. But he certainly couldn't have meant Brother Philip. I mean, Philip is so passive. He's like a real nobody. But then, somehow mysteriously, he has a gift for just being there when you need him. He just turns up, appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. But of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet, supposing he did. Suppose I am the Messiah. Oh God, not me. I couldn't be that much for you, could I? As they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with an extraordinary respect on the off chance that one of them might be the Messiah. <laughs> and on the off-off chance that they each themselves might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Now, because the forest in which it was situated was quite beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery, to picnic on its lawn, to wander along some of the paths, and even to go into the old broken-down chapel to meditate and pray. And as they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed this aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it. Hardly knowing why, they began to come back more to the monastery, more frequently, to picnic, to play, to pray. They began to bring their friends to show them the special place, and their friends brought, brought their friends. And then it happened that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks. And after a while, one asked if he could join them, and another, and another. And within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order. And thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant centre of light and spirituality in the realm. There is a beauty and a grace, and not presuming we know what is possible for us right here in this life.
in the midst and even in the face of all observers. We don't know what may be possible. And trusting in that possibility, trusting in our life, All things are possible. It's even possible to be present sometimes. Which at the beginning of the retreat seems pretty close to impossible. <laughs> to see that that's not something we do. That's not something we make happen. And yet by the way we incline ourselves, by the way we orient our intentions, the way we bring ourselves wholeheartedly again into our lives, we don't make it happen, but nor yet does it happen apart from our intentions and our integrity and our sense of really honouring the truth of our life right now as it is and learning to more and more fully inhabit it. Ultimately, the only refuge that we have in this world is the truth of our life. A truth that includes the way things are right now and equally includes the possibility of our awakening in the very midst of them. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.